When it comes to running a business, few things matter more than generating revenue. But sales folks aren't just closing deals. They're tracking down leads, forecasting growth, whipping up reports, managing contracts, creating content, crunching numbers. The list goes on and on. And with Q4 around the corner, there's a better way to win. It all starts with the new HubSpot Sales Hub. With HubSpot Sales Hub, your data, tools, and teams are fully linked inside a smart and highly customizable platform that feels good to use. Turn prospects into pipeline and close the deal all in one place. Plus, sequences and smooth workflows helps reps streamline tasks and spend more time on what they do best, connecting with customers. With Sales Hub, closing deals is no big deal. Try it for yourself at HubSpot.com slash sales. You're listening to Side Hustle Pro, the podcast that teaches you to build and grow your side hustle from passion project to profitable business. And I'm your host, Nikayla Matthews-Okome. So let's get started. Check the mic and make sure it sounds right, boys. Hey, hey, friends. Welcome, welcome back to the show. It's Nikayla here back with an update episode today. So today in the guest chair, I have Denise Woodard. She is the founder and CEO of Partake Foods. And you originally heard her in episode 138 of Side Hustle Pro back in 2019. So a lot of things have happened. The company has grown exponentially since we spoke with her. Um, If you're not familiar, Partake Foods is the allergy-friendly company inspired by her daughter's experience with food allergies. And some key moments that have happened since we spoke in episode 138 include Partake Foods has announced that it became a certified B Corporation, and it's even launched a collab with Ben & Jerry's. More about Partake. It was created in 2016. She started the business by self-distributing, aka selling cookies out of her car around NYC, and self-funded. Denise depleted her 401k and sold her engagement ring to fund the business. Business. To date, the company has now raised even more money. It's raised more than 20 million from investors, including her, Rihanna, Circle Up Growth Partners, FF2032, and Marcy Venture Partners, which is Jay Z's venture capital firm. Partake was named number 45 on the Inc. 5000 list in 2022. And Denise is the first Black woman to raise more than 1 million publicly for a CPG food startup. This is a huge huge feat as it has been reported that black founders raised only 187 million out of the nearly 43 billion in venture capital allocated in Q3 of 2022 to put that into perspective for you guys that's only about 0.43% of the total investment made in that quarter so as a black woman Denise is passionate about raising awareness of black and female entrepreneurship and increasing opportunities for underrepresented people seeking careers in the food and beverage industry In 2020, Denise founded Black Futures in Food and Beverage, an annual fellowship program that mentors HBCU students and helps them secure internships and jobs at the end of the program. Prior to launching Partake, Denise spent a decade in consumer packaged goods at various Fortune 100 companies. And in today's episode, we hear how this influenced her own journey and also what she takes from that and what she does with her own business as a result. I really enjoyed catching up with Denise. I mean, I just think she is doing phenomenal. She's very, very inspiring. And I took away a lot from this episode. I hope you do too. So let's get right into it. 
right, all right. Denise, welcome, welcome back to the guest chair, the Side Hustle Pro guest chair. I'm so happy to be here. It's so nice to see you. I'm excited for this catch-up conversation. Me too, because the last time we spoke was in 2019. Now, Partake, you know, it was on the move. It was in different stores at that point. It was starting. But I mean, you guys have exploded since then. I can't even keep track of all the retailers I see you in. I can find Partake, it feels like anywhere. Um, So tell us a little bit more about what's changed since 2019 to today, 2023. A lot has changed since then. So in 2019, we raised our million dollars of seed capital that was led by Marcy Venture Partners. Um, They've continued to be a phenomenal partner. We've uh, grown to have raised about $20 million in outside capital now. Um, In 2019, we were in Whole Foods and Wegmans in about 300 stores around the country. And now we're in about 12,000 doors around the country. Um, You can find us on American Airlines. We have a co-branded SKU with Ben and Jerry's. Um, The team in 2019 was me um, with some uh, contractors (laughs) who are willing to take a chance on working with me. And now we have about 20 full-time employees. Um, I feel like I have a whole different job. It has been a real steep learning curve before starting Partake. I had never managed anyone, let alone a whole company. Um, But I think because a lot has stayed the same since 2019, you know, it's been manageable to get through this. And exciting and inspiring and hard and so many feelings. Oh, I can imagine. Um, What made you decide to raise? Like what went into that process of deciding this is what we need to do? So we had bootstrapped the business as far as we could. I sold my engagement ring. I had emptied my 401k. I had maxed out all my credit cards and I was financially all in to the point we couldn't uh, be anymore in financially. And we were seeing really positive results at retail. At that point, um, Whole Foods in their Southwest region and Wegmans had given us a chance. And I started to see quickly how expensive it is to compete at retail when you're competing against large legacy brands. And so we were Mm -hmm. needing to invest in sales and marketing um, to be able to support the growth that we were seeing. And so that was what prompted us to raise money because I knew to be able to fully capitalize on the opportunity to continue to grow distribution, to hire team members, because there was only so much I could do by myself, um, we would need some outside capital. What was that process like for you? You work with, you said, Marcy Ventures. So um, what does that entail? Like when you say we worked with a venture company? So at the time, Marcy led a seed round of funding. So we brought a million dollars of capital into the business from Marcy, as well as a few other investors that involves, you know, giving a portion of the company, like they're buying a portion of the company. So you don't have sole ownership, but I Mm -hmm. always compare it to like, I'd rather own a small percentage of a watermelon than an entire grape. And I think to get to to the watermelon, we needed the outside capital. Um, You know, you have a strategic thought partner to talk through tough times and, and tough things with, but you also have accountability. It created the formation of a board, um, budgets, um, review of those budgets. Like there's definitely financial metrics that you're held accountable to. Um, so I still drive the mission and values and kind of the general 
like I drive the growth of the company. Um, but we also have other stakeholders that we're responsible to because, you know, they're responsible to the, the folks that gave them money to, to raise their funds. And so it definitely right. creates a lot more accountability. Um, you know, I think it creates more pressure, probably self-imposed pressure. Like I feel like I took someone else's money. It's my responsibility to, mm-hmm. to deliver on what I said I was going to deliver on. And so it definitely changes the dynamic in the business, but I wouldn't have chosen to do it a different way. I feel like I've been really fortunate to have the partners right. that we have around the table. I feel like their mm-hmm. mission and vision aligned with me, um, but it definitely creates a, a different type of pressure in the business. Yes. And you know, you say Marcy Ventures so casually. I just quickly Googled and I knew it, but I was just wanted to make sure I was like, wait a second now. Marcy Venture Partners was co-founded by Sean Carter, aka Jay-Z. <laughs> we, gotta, yeah. we gotta talk about how did you go about even getting in front of them and you know getting them to come in in the seed round? So in the seed round, I had gotten nearly a hundred no's. It was probably one of the most emotionally taxing things I had been Mm. through. I think fundraising, the word that comes to mind for me is soul crushing because you're expected to continue to go out day to day, grow the business, perform so that people want to invest alongside being told no all the time. This isn't going to work. This isn't going to be big enough. Like, And so you have to be able to... For me, I had a bigger North Star, which was I knew my daughter was watching. I knew I wanted to create something better for her and other people with food allergies. I had so much conviction in what we were building that allowed me to keep going. But to be told no day after day after day and see your bank account dwindle away and be so financially invested in the business, um, it was a lot. And so we got all these no's and a friend of mine works in the music industry. And I'd seen that uh, Jay-Z had co-founded a venture fund. I was like, do you know Jay-Z? He's like, no, (laughs) but um, I know one of the partners there. And so we had a chance to connect with them. And, you know, it was different from the very beginning. I think a lot of those other, like I was pitching to a lot of angel groups and it's like, you know, what's your unit economics? What's the margin? What's the total addressable market? It was very financially driven. And don't get me wrong. We got to like very robust financial diligence with Marcy, but it's started with like, who are you? Where are you from? Why are you building this? What do you stand for? And the dynamic of the relationship was just different from the very beginning. And I think Mm. through that experience, um, it was, it gave me a lot of confidence because after Marcy said yes, half those folks that said no came back and said yes. And they were like, oh, no, actually. Look at um, and that. So it was, you know, I was like, same founder, same traction, yes. same story, but because someone else believed they were willing to come along now. And so Mm -hmm. um, it gave me a lot more confidence and conviction in what we were building. It gave us a ton of brand awareness to have that association with Marcy. Um, It gave us the financial capital we needed to begin to scale the business. And so I'm forever grateful for them being willing to take a chance on me. Yes, all it takes is one. And it's so funny, but not unbelievable that you know all those people came circling back like wait a minute (laughs) oh okay we're interested now and you talk a lot about the fact that raising money as a black woman first of all you were the first black woman to raise more than one million publicly for a cpg food startup right which I'm proud of like it's such a dismal step black women are starting companies faster than anybody else it's not for lack of like Working hard, great products, like it's frustrating. I usually, I I feel torn sometimes about repeating these stats because I don't want to get 
bogged down with these stats. Sometimes I feel like it's almost, it's just like, I don't want to present any guests in this lens. And I don't want to think of our stories through this lens. But at the same time, when I read that, I was like, really? Because it almost feels like, really? You know, this, this hasn't been done yet. Oh my goodness. What happens after you raise this kind of money? Like what were the first things you shifted to start investing in? We needed a packaging redesign um, very badly. So we were able to invest (laughs) in that. Otherwise, it just gave me the fuel to go execute on the plans that we already had. So nothing changed. And I think that like when people then go start to spend a bunch more money on marketing or hire a bunch of people, like I think if you lose financial discipline because you've raised the money, it's not a good thing necessarily. And so we didn't change any of our plans. It just gave us the money to go execute on the plans that we already had. Did you increase staffing at that point or still kind of stay with the same size team and go harder? I stayed with the same size team, which was just me and some contractors and went harder and said, when we get a commitment from one of these retailers I'm going after, then we will build out the team. And so in January or February of 2020, I thought Target would give us a small regional test and they gave us nearly the entire chain. And then I was like, oh, it's game time. We need to hire some people. And so (laughs) thankfully, a couple of folks who were contractors were able to come on board as full-time employees. Mm-hmm. What did you need to hire for? Were you doing because you were you doing in-house packaging or was it still a uh, manufacturer outsourcing that part? We had a contract manufacturer co-packer from day one. Um, right. I typically advise founders to start as small as you can. And so no, okay. I would have started in a commercial kitchen. But because of kind of the allergy, uh, the allergy portion of our, our brand Mm -hmm. There was no allergy-friendly commercial kitchen. So we worked with a co-packer from day one. The first folks that I hired, I hired um, for things I wasn't good at or didn't enjoy. So that was operations, like ordering ingredients, scheduling freight, scheduling production runs. So we hired a director of operations. And then sales is what my background was in. And so I enjoyed that. And really, I felt like I was good at it, but there was just not enough time for me to do it all. And so we hired a director of sales as the second employee. And from there, hired um, a sales coordinator to kind of keep up with the day to day. Like a lot of the stuff isn't like the glamorous roles. I think Mm -hmm. oftentimes I talk to people and they're like, you know, I need a brand manager and I need a social media person. (laughs) I need somebody for TikTok. And like, no, you need to make somebody make sure somebody is like looking at the financials and gets the product out the door on time and figures out how it's going to sell to customers. And so right. um, it was like the roles that kept the business going weren't necessarily the the sexiest ones, but they were so critically important. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. That is a reminder to me too. Even when you're not doing like a physical product, you have to really be disciplined in how much time you spend thinking about marketing because everyone thinks it's about the marketing. And while it is important, there are times when I have neglected my social channels and neglected meaning, even though I have team, like I haven't been giving them directions for it because I'm like, I need to just focus on this product that I'm finishing updating or what have you. And like, this is the business. It's not Instagram. This right here needs to be solid. So I just have to put my blinders on. So I I get what you're saying 100%. Now back to getting that initial seed funding and starting to execute on your plans. Then 2020 happens. Talk to us about how 2020 was for you, because it was this mixture of 
sadness and just all this stuff going on in the world, but then also this, this weird mix of newfound opportunity for black owned founders. Uh, what was your experience? I think it was a lot of what you just shared. Like I can't be immune to, there was so much pain and sickness and illness and just like total upheaval of your like normal day-to-day life. So, you know, I'm working at home, a remote team of three people total. My daughter's at home with us, homeschool. My husband is in the midst of looking for a new career during a pandemic. Um, Thankfully, we had gotten that, uh, the cash infusion from Marcy. And we were in the midst of launching Target nationally. We went into Target May of 2020. We were expanding with Whole Foods. We were going into Sprouts. Like between the end of 2019 and the end of 2020, we went from 350 stores to 5,000 stores. So it was a year of rapid growth for us. A lot of our marketing strategy previously had been built on in-person experiences, whether that be demos, showing up at local festivals, COVID shut all of that down. So we were trying to figure out how to pivot to a more digital, scalable kind of marketing strategy. And then George Floyd gets murdered. Um, And I think one of the most tragic instances ended up bringing so much good to our business. And so I reckoned with a lot of personal guilt around that. And so thought about how to channel some of that into something positive. And so mm-hmm. out of that, like the amount of inbound from a in potential investor, customer, brand partnerships, influencers, like I couldn't even keep track of all of it. Um, and then we decided to launch a fellowship program called the Black oh. Futures and Food and Beverage Fellowship in September of 2020. Because I was like, I feel like we were the beneficiary of so much good that came out of a tragedy. Like, what can I do to create mm-hmm. more positivity around that? And so the fellowship had always been an idea. I spent my previous life at Coca-Cola and I was always right. so frustrated with the lack of diversity in the room. And I thought, mm-hmm. well, when I start to build my team, it'll be much more diverse. And then as I started to think about, and as I started to hire the applicant pool for these specific roles was so homogenous. And I was like, well, wow. how do we fix that? And so we started a fellowship program alongside the first year was five HBCUs. And so far we mm-hmm. will run our third cohort this year. We've helped about 20 HBCU students find jobs or internships in the food industry and have had the opportunity to partner with large companies like Chobani and PepsiCo. And so 2020 was hard and crazy and like a great year for the business, a really like it was just the weirdest time. And to your point, I do feel like there was a lot of opportunity. And so the other thing I felt was you said earlier, like it just takes one. Yes. And I could see that. And so I was like, the door is open. Like how many other people, how many other founders can I help hopefully, you know, get to what they are deserve, where their business deserves to be when this small window of opportunity is here. So um, yeah, 2020 was crazy. That is amazing though, that you started this fellowship. Is the fellowship for CPG founders or people who also want to work for like the Coca-Colas and the other big name CPG companies? So the way it's worked thus far has been it's an eight week virtual curriculum for HBCU Mm -hmm. students where we kind of go through the nuts and bolts of the food industry. I remember when I was in college, I thought working for like Coca-Cola meant you were a brand manager. I didn't understand like food safety and quality and procurement Uh. and marketing and sales and how many other opportunities exist within food and beverage companies. And so it's an eight week curriculum that goes through that. And then it culminates with a virtual career day. And so we've had companies like Chobani and PepsiCo and Mars, Mm -hmm. as well as a ton of emerging brands show up. 
um, to learn more about and hopefully hire our fellow. So it's a program for HBCU students to get more exposure to the food industry and to mm-hmm. hopefully then be able to get jobs and internships in the food industry and also have some peer mentorship alongside the other fellows in the program. And what do you think are some of the unique challenges that CPG food startups face that make it so hard to raise money? Um, I think that when you look at the multiples or the returns on food versus like a SaaS, like a tech company, like they're not Mm -hmm. the same. And so, um, you know, I could see where I can see that, you know, investors are oftentimes putting their dollars where there's a higher return. Um, I think the margin profile for a small food and beverage company is often challenging. You're like making a product that you have to sell to be competitive with for us, you know, Oreos and Chips Ahoy on shelf, and you don't have the scale of that business. And so like, it's hard, it takes a while to get profitable, particularly if you're trying to grow the business rapidly. And so, you know, it feels like it's a very capital intensive business. As you go into new retailers, oftentimes they require slotting, which is like, you're basically paying for your spot on shelf. They require promotions. You have to build a team. Like there's a lot of cost involved with doing business alongside slim margins, alongside Mm -hmm. the return isn't as strong as a software company. And so, you know, because of that, I think there's sometimes less capital and it seems Mm -hmm. fairly cyclical. I think, you know, people see these big exits like RX bar and Halo top and then food is sexy again. And so like, you know, I think it goes in waves, but I think we're in a wave where funding is a bit tricky for all industries. And I I think Mm -hmm. food and beverage, I think women, I think people of color are feeling it even more so. And then what about ingredients? Because I imagine, yes, someone might look at RX Bar and say, oh, that's amazing, but we don't know what it takes to make that product versus your product, shelf life and all that other stuff. Um, Were there new considerations that you had to make to make sure that your product could be on the shelf safely as long as possible? So we started... I I think oftentimes there's this misconception about me that I'm like some amazing baker who had this idea. (laughs) I am a terrible cook, terrible baker. I had kind of the business idea and strategy. And so thankfully we brought in a professional from day one who was a food scientist who built it with the intention of like, will this work on target shelves? And so I don't feel like we had to backtrack on that, but I think had I like, had I started in the kitchen, there is definitely a very big difference in terms of commercial ingredients versus um, industrial ingredients. I definitely think you're totally correct in that mm-hmm. um, it's challenging to scale up a formula. It's challenging to get the shelf life there. We worked yes. with a professional from day one. Um, we ended up finding her because I couldn't afford to work with like a big fancy agency. Um, I went on to LinkedIn. I found every person who had worked in food, science, or innovation at all of our competitors and I email, I cold emailed them and thankfully one of them was willing to respond to my note and she had led product development for one of the biggest uh, brands in our space and was willing to, yeah. to take a chance on me. I love your scrappy approach and that's just like, I'm going to find them. Like the internet is there for you guys. I'm going to find mm-hmm. them. I'm going to send a cold email. Worst they can do is say no, but it looks like you've had some some good experiences with that. <laughs> for sure. I think um, that's how we found our, our manufacturing partner. Yeah. That's how we've gotten so many of our investors. That's how yeah. we got Whole Foods. And I, I think like just getting started, being scrappy, because nobody else mm-hmm. is going to do it for you if you don't find a way. Um, you know, it's it's hard with a lack of resources. Is it also challenging because of the kind of product, meaning if you were not concerned with allergens and you were not making a product for people who have allergies to be able to consume, 
do you think it would be easier to either get funding or get on shelves or, or stay on shelves? No, I think it's just as hard, no matter what part of the food or beverage landscape you're in. I think Mm -hmm. if we weren't making a product that was allergy friendly, we'd be answering the question of, well, what makes this product different? And so like, Uh, you know, I think it's challenging regardless. I think that um, there's a lot of food and beverage companies that are starting mm -hmm. right now. And because of that, the contract manufacturers kind of get their choice of who they want to work with. They get to Mm -hmm. set their own terms. And so I think no matter who you are, or what type of food or beverage product you have, it's challenging. Success Story, hosted by Scott D. Clary, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. Success Story features Q&A sessions with successful business leaders, keynote presentations, and conversations on sales, marketing, business, startups, and entrepreneurship. I recently checked out the episode called How to Focus Like Einstein, where Scott discusses how to zero in on this laser-like focus, because we all know that we can accomplish more in less time if we just focus. Listen to Success Story wherever you get your podcasts. Partake Foods is now a certified B corporation. What does that mean? So that means we are a benefit corporation, which means we are beholden to kind of the community as a shareholder versus just financial shareholders. And so our board and myself have signed off on this. And so when we make decisions, we're thinking about how do we make the world better, not just have the best financial return. And it was something that was super important to me. And I feel like a way that we were already operating, but I want to make sure that we got it solidified as a part of the operating agreement of the company. Like we are not just here to make food. We are also here to make the world a better place. And it's our responsibility, I think, to do so. We have to go back and touch on finances because this is not something that we can gloss over. Like you sold your engagement ring. (laughs) You depleted your 401k. That is sacrifice. All right. The engagement ring, that is sacrifice. Did did you guys, did you have any issues with your husband over that? (laughs) No, I heard this story on, um, there's a a cosmetics company or skincare company called Tatcha. And that's where I got the inspiration. And she ended up having an amazing story and selling the business to Unilever. But that's where I heard it. And I was just like frantically looking around the house, like, what do we have around here that has value? And, you know, I think that like people ask me if my husband's involved in the business. And while he's not an employee, I think entrepreneurship is a family affair. Like my husband and my daughter both have to be supportive of this. And so thankfully he was supportive. I still have the band, but, uh, you know, one day we'll replace the engagement ring. It was important for us to be able to seed the business and grow the business. And that was a means to be able to do so. And when you got that seed investment, did you take an official salary or just, you know, use as you need for business expenses and, you know, live below your means? I took a salary, but it was... 80% less, 90% less than what I was making uh, in my corporate role. And I think that was kind of my own personal doing. I think oftentimes Mm. when you raise capital, investors are supportive of the founder taking a healthy salary because the last thing they want is you stressed out about money because they want you to be able to go grow the business. But I also knew that the capital would be able to get the business further and I would be able to retain more equity if I tried to to hold on to that cash rather than like taking a huge salary. So I tried to take the smallest amount that I could that would allow me okay. to be able to continue to live. Um, 
And, you know, over time, I've been able to start to take a more healthy salary. But in the beginning, for the first few years, I took no salary. After we raised the seed round, I took a very small salary. Um, mm-hmm. And as the business has grown, I've been able to thankfully increase it. When you say retaining equity, is there a percentage in mind that you're like, I don't ever want to go below this? And how do you come up with that? No, I'm focused on keeping my team employed, keeping the business mm-hmm. funded, making sure that we can grow this business to what I think it could be. And, you know, if the company's worth a billion dollars and I own 1% of that, like I would take that all day over owning 80% of a $10 million company. And so yeah. um, I've been focused on making sure that we have the right board members and investors around the table that are aligned from a mission and vision and values perspective. So right. I don't get into the situation of like, you know, having a cost cut on ingredients or change mm-hmm. like our promise of the company, which is one of the reasons we did the B Corp certification. Okay. Um, but as long as I can hold true to my values and the values yeah. that the company stands for, I'm not concerned about the dilution. And I don't know, you know, I think everyone has different thoughts on that. I grew up right. in, a, in a pretty humble beginning. Like, any type of like, I didn't, the word liquidity event, the word exit, like none of those were even in my vocabulary growing right, up. So like, right. This is already like beyond the dreams that I had for what my yes. life would be. And so I'm just focused on growing the business. Same. Okay. I completely get that. And this is not going to be one of those episodes where we, I don't even think I've had those episodes because I honestly hate the conversation where we debate, oh, ownership and all this other stuff because I'm of the same viewpoint, but I know that it gets really controversial. So if you guys want to have that talk, let me know in the comments and we'll, we might do a round table. I always say that and the round table hasn't happened yet. (laughs) So I have a lot of thoughts on it. So I would be, if you have the round table, I'm happy to participate. We need a dedicated episode just for that, to dispel some of these myths around legacy and ownership that prevents us from even, I don't even say us because I'm not in that perspective, but prevents some from wanting to raise, wanting to take on investment. Did you have something else to say on that? (laughs) I'll save it for the round table, but I just think like when I think about being able to like our team is super diverse. Mm -hmm. We're able to invest in this fellowship to be able to create more diversity in the food industry. Like those are the things I think about in terms of my legacy. Like how many other people can I help through this business? And you know what? As I raise more money and grow this business more, that might mean Mm -hmm. I own less, but I've been able to help more women and more black and brown people achieve, like get more access to things. And so, yeah, I could talk all day about that, but we'll save it for the round table. I'm particularly interested too in this stat that you shared is just sticking in my head about, you know, you being one of the first to raise 1 million publicly for a CPG food startup, because I think of how many food startups exist in the Black community and how many of them stay small. And everyone has different goals. Not everyone needs to be a CPG, right? But I know that there's some people who are holding them back from even thinking this is a possibility. So I hope that you inspire people to think bigger. And I know it's going to be hard. You know, not everyone has a friend that knows someone who works at Jay-Z's Venture Capital. But even if you don't, you have to get your reps in. Like you had 100 reps in, probably even more, before you got to that space where now you have investment from that venture um, company. Plus also, I understand Rihanna is also an investor. Yeah, Rihanna's an investor. We've been really, really fortunate. Uh, (laughs) Rihanna's an investor. Her is an investor. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Like when you set out to go like achieve your dreams and like live your true passion, 
right. that what happens, like I set out to make life easier for families with food allergies. I never thought mm-hmm. that Rihanna or Jay-Z would have yeah. any affiliation with my business. But I think when you're living with intention and doing, yes. trying to make things better, like other people gravitate towards right. it. And so it's been really a uh, crazy and like mind blowing to, to have mm-hmm. them involved in the business, but grateful for all of our investors. Very, very impressive what you have built. And, you know, I just have to spend another minute on our girl, Riri. Um, so <laughs> how does she come about? Like, does she taste your cookies and then hit you up? <laughs> or no. was it through Marcy Venture Partners? <laughs> no, there's a lot of connectivity with Rihanna yeah. and Marcy. And so, right. um, yeah, I think we're her only public investment outside of kind of her own ventures. And so it's something I don't take lightly. I think no. whether it's Rihanna or an angel investor, nobody knows. Like when I've right. taken somebody else's money to go provide a return and grow this business and stay true to what we said, I take the responsibility all the same. But yeah, my daughter like does, usually doesn't think what I do is very cool. But the fact that <laughs> Rihanna is on board did win me some points. So I'm appreciative of it. I mean, she inspired this entire business. Does she realize that your daughter? Oh, yes. You know, and it's really, it's been one of the most rewarding things about the businesses. I used to walk down the aisles of like Walmart and Target and be like, like food companies were, all the companies were abstract to me. I thought like I could never start anything like that. I thought of entrepreneurship as my dad's a truck driver. He owns a small truck company. I thought Mm -hmm. of that. I thought of my local barbershop. And those are all like important businesses that keep communities going. But I never thought of entrepreneurship at scale. My daughter walks down the aisle of Target and she's like, what is their marketing strategy? Why does the product (laughs) photography look like that? I'm going to start this company. And she's like eight. And so the fact that she doesn't have a ceiling on her head and understands that if she wants to create something that she too can figure it out, but also Mm -hmm. that it comes with a ton of hard work and sacrifice to be Mm -hmm. able to do so is probably like top three most rewarding things about doing this. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And what has competition been like now that people see that you've started this business, it tastes good, it's allergen-free, are you inspiring people in both a good and annoying way? <laughs> I hope so. I think I don't, whatever the saying is about rising tide lifts all boats. Like there's enough yeah. people out here that eat cookies that like, there's enough room for a lot of people to win. And if it helps mm-hmm. consumers eat better foods and it helps small businesses grow, like I'm competition aware, not competition obsessed is what I like to say. Uh Like I'm definitely keeping an eye on what's happening to understand market trends, to understanding if we should be zigging instead of zagging or whatever Mm -hmm. it may be. But if I feel like we're putting our best product forward and we're bringing something unique to the market and we have a different story and a different brand proposition and a good product, like I'm not focused on what somebody on the left and right are doing. Um, You know, I'm aware of it because I think we have to operate within like you know, I want to be competitive from a price perspective. I need to understand what the promotionals are, but like, I don't let it keep me up at night for sure. Okay. I think that's a great perspective to have. Um, How did the collab with Ben and Jerry's come about? That was a long time coming. That's been another lesson in this business is, whoo, you need a lot of patience because I think Mm. some of the best things take time. We met the Ben and Jerry's team because our first sales employee, who's a a VP of sales here now, cold reached out to Ben and Jerry's um, and said, hey, we're this cookie. We do this thing. And like (laughs) we met them in the summer of 2020 and we launched our flavor, Oatmeal Dream Pie, which is a gluten-free plant-based flavor that you can find in grocery stores as well as as in their scoop shops. Um, We launched it in the spring of this year or no January of this year. So three years in the making to be able to bring that to life. And I'm so um, grateful to the Unilever team because they are a massive company. Their patience in like 
you know, there was a lot we had to be able to deliver from a food safety quality documentation perspective to be able to work with them. And they really helped us step our game up, stepped our game up, but they really came at it like from a partnership lens. And so it's been a fantastic experience. I've loved being able to partner with a brand that's so aligned with us from a mission perspective and a values perspective. And so, and we made a really yummy ice cream flavor. So it's been great. Nice, nice. How do you decide what makes someone a good partner? I look at who our consumer base is. I look at what our brand stands for, which is inclusivity. Like we want everybody to have a seat at the table. We want people to feel celebrated, not left out. Um, and I look at, does that brand espouse that? Is this something that like, is this a divisive company or is this a company that really stands to lift up underrepresented groups and bring people together? Um, and if it's the first, we don't do it. I don't care how big the revenue is. I don't care who it is. Like we are not sacrificing our values. I say that like, it's really easy to say. Um, I know, it's right? not like, I mean, you know, it's hard to like, uh, to, you're trying to grow a business. It's hard to say no to revenue, but I know that yeah. the right thing is to continue to partner with people and with companies that stand for similar values um, that I think bring more positivity and inclusivity to the world. Speaking of uh, turning down revenue, now that you've taken on investment, how do you view your future strategy in terms of how much are you looking to grow the business so that you know that you can make everyone make money, everyone who's invested in you plus you and continue to grow the business? That's an ongoing question. Um, you know, growth versus profitability. How fast do you try to grow? So yeah. the things that I kind of try to keep in my framework are the growth comes from a few different levers. It comes from innovation. So we just launched mm-hmm. graham crackers nationally at Target in June. Ooh, um, are we bringing... I love them, uh, particularly for s'mores. But are we bringing <laughs> new innovation to the market that Mm -hmm. our customers are asking for, that our consumers are asking for. If not, like we don't need to just be doing Me Too products just to have something new. So like, is the innovation delivering against a white space? Um, Does it make money? Like, does it have strong unit economics? We shouldn't be like making something for a dollar and selling it for 95 cents. Like we have to have strong unit economics. Um, Distribution is another way to grow. Right now we're in about 12,000 doors. I want to make sure that there's accessibility and people um, from all different walks of life and all parts of the country can find our product. But I also don't yeah. want to spread ourselves too thin. And so making sure that we're staying conscious of that. So, you know, we want to grow for sure. Because as we grow, we get to bring new products to right. more consumers. We get to meet them in different places, whether it be airports or airlines or workplaces. Um, but I also don't want to do that at the sacrifice of profit or at the sacrifice of staying true to our value. So it feels like an art and a science in terms of determining how fast to grow. Um, And it's something we're still figuring out. But those are some of the things we think about as we're going through that process. Another thing I also wonder, just looking from the outside in, because it seems that you guys have just gained so much visibility. I wonder about your marketing spend and how do you make sure that you capitalize on the opportunity, but don't blow it all on just ads or promotional pop-ups and things like that? 
So I will say we do the least sexy stuff. We're investing on our retailer.coms, like investing on Walmart or Target or Kroger.com, um, doing a lot of shopper marketing programs. So part programs mm-hmm. that the retailer has in place to get additional display space and store things that are close to the point of purchase. Okay. Um, we use me as a, a free, I mean, you know, my time has value, but I'm out there mm-hmm. evangelizing the brand, telling the story. And so a lot of kind of the brand awareness, I think, comes through our social media channels through the content Mm -hmm. that we put out there. Um, We've been fortunate to have some high-profile investors who are able to go kind of share the story and bring light to our business. I'm spending a lot of time doing the same. But when I look at our marketing budget, you know, we're not out here like getting billboards, wrapping trucks, like doing anything like that. We are like trying to get a display in our retail account. We're making sure that we're getting additional placement in the retail accounts. I do think though, you have to kind of take a holistic approach to it. I don't think you can just do one of those things. Like somebody can't just, my opinion is, somebody can't just invest in PR and think that's going to move the marketing needle for them. You kind of have to do a little bit of all the things is what it feels mm-hmm. like. So we do field marketing and sampling. We do PR. We do um, programs in our retail accounts. We do do some ads. And so, um, you know, we take a targeted approach um, focused on a driving uh, driving dollars at our retailers, but it is a fairly holistic approach. And how are you doing with not letting it consume your life? Is that possible? <laughs> you know, I get you know, that is question. There, is there an off switch ever? You know, I try to like when I think about self-care for mm-hmm. me, that looks different every single day. I know that it's important because I've seen what happens when it doesn't happen. So whether that be yeah. experiencing a panic attack tearing my ACL. Like if you don't sit down and like take some time for yourself, you will kind of get sat down for your, like, and so like, I know that I need to pour into my own cup and the whole, like, put your oxygen mask on first. Like I believe all that, but I also know what it takes to build a business at this point in my life. And it requires a lot of sacrifice and it requires a lot of hours. And so, you know, I also try to prioritize, like at the end of the day, my family is the most, my family, my health is the most important things to me. And so Mm -hmm. that means sacrifice. Like it means I'm waking up early and doing work before I get my daughter off to camp. It means I'm staying up late and getting work done so that I can read her a bedtime story. And so there's definitely some balance and integration. I think it does mean though, like, you know, whether that's a walk in nature, whether it's a meditation, whether it's just binging some Netflix, I do have to make some time for myself. But Mm -hmm. I would say that this idea of like work-life balance and you can have it all. Yeah. I think you can have it all at some point, but it ebbs and flows. And right now I'm in a season of a lot of work. Yeah, which is just why I try not to even mention those words like balance. What is that? But I'm always interested in if there is a part of you that feels like, you know what, I can close my laptop today because I need two hours to myself. Like I know I'm in right now. You're in a season that requires more of you to be in the business. But do you have those moments where you can step away and not panic, not be like thinking about the business 24 seven? I can definitely step away and not panic because we have a super competent and capable team. Um, This year over a summer vacation was the first time it was my 40th birthday. Um, My first time putting a, thank you, putting an out of office response. And I've been working Mm. on this for seven years. And so there's not a lot of stepping away, but there's definitely some stepping away every day. Um, Mm -hmm. But like days away 
um, from the business? No, but I could totally see value in that. I hear from friends who are like, you know, I shut my laptop and I went away for a week and I had so many great ideas. I think it also <laughs> depends on how every person's wired. I get so yes. much joy from working in the business that like, yeah. I can't imagine not doing it. So it's not yeah. like I'm dreading it at all. I love it. And that's what I've come to understand. Like people have different ways of working and it doesn't mean that you're going to burn yourself out. You know, my husband's a lot like that where I have to remind him like, okay, let's close the laptop right now. You know, let's watch Netflix. Let's do something. Let's chill out because he's like, but I'm enjoying this. Like this is not work to me. I don't feel like I'm working late into the night. So I had to really wrap my head around that. And then also let's touch base some more on this, this concept of sometimes your grinding, I guess you could say, or your work season is going to last a long time as an entrepreneur. It's not sexy. My husband and I also joke about this because I'm like, but I want to do it both. Like I want to take the vacations now. <laughs> I don't want to wait until, you know, everything's all built. Like I want to go now. Um, so that part though is a balance, balancing when do I get to reap the rewards of what I've done so far, which is amazing, you know, all the money you've raised for the business, or when do I need to just keep my head down, lay low and build? You know, I think that as people are hopefully fortunate enough to scale their businesses, there's definitely opportunities for founders to the lingo is take money off the table. So Mm -hmm. there's definitely opportunities to pay yourself a healthier salary, to be able to sell some of your equity, to live a more comfortable life. So for me, I couldn't be happy in the business for seven years, wondering if I'm going to be able to like afford to go out to eat the next day. And that's what it was the first few years. And so, you know, as we've grown the business, as we've raised more capital, I've been able to turn the table some and have a more comfortable life. That means, you know, I'm working a lot, but work might just mean my AirPods and my laptop. It doesn't mean like I'm like toiling away at stores, like selling cookies, like I used to have to do. And so work looks different. A lot of it's like Mm -hmm. vision work and budgeting work and board work. Um, And so the work looks different. I think the financial rewards, thankfully, I don't think you have to wait till you sell the business or whatever, like your next lifetime to be able to reap some of those. I think there's an opportunity to continue to work hard and enjoy yourself because like, Mm -hmm. otherwise, what's the joy in just working, working, working with no reward whatsoever? Right, right. And so where would you say the business is now financially? Um, You know, you had to grow so fast. So you talk about the investment that comes and I know that, um, you could be profitable. And then because you have to scale up to meet new demands, then you become unprofitable. So where are you now? We're working to get to profitability. We're not there yet. Um, We've grown revenue. Last year, we were number four fastest growing food company on Inc. 5000's list. So we've grown quite a bit. Um, But I think we're just getting started. It's weird. Like we talked four years ago. Um, And I don't feel like a lot has changed since then, but I feel like we still have, I feel like I'm just at the beginning. So I think that there's hopefully still a lot to go. That's so interesting. I completely hear what you're saying. It's like, you've done so much, but there's still so much that can be done. The opportunity is, you know, there's no ceiling to it, especially when you've seen some of these other brands that we won't mention that are just like roll off your tongue, household names. Like that's a level to aspire to. For sure. So now we're going to jump into a quick lightning round. You answered these four years ago. So I'm interested to go back and hear how things have shifted. But um, let's just jump into it. You answer the first thing that comes to mind. You ready? 
I think so. I'm so bad at lightning rounds. Okay, but I'm ready. <laughs> I know they never really lightning. All right. Number one, um, what's the top resource that you can think of? You know, shareable resource that has really helped you with partake, building partake that you can share with the Side Hustle Pro audience. I wish it were more innovative, but LinkedIn to the point earlier, that's how we Mm. found our best resources. That's still how we're finding so many resources. So LinkedIn and then building community based on that. That's how we found our best investor partners, food scientists, retail accounts, all the things. Love it. No, it's good because it's a reminder. I underutilize LinkedIn. So thank you for that reminder. Um, Number two, who is a non-celebrity Black woman entrepreneur who you would want to switch places for you know, a day with these days and just kind of see what they do. The person who comes to mind is a celebrity and it's Issa Rae because I'm so fascinated by how she's built so much across so many platforms. Um, I think otherwise, Nancy Twine, who's the founder of Briogeo, the hair care company, I find super fascinating because they like they didn't raise a ton of capital. She was able to grow that business massively, have a successful exit. And so seeing how she did that, understanding mm-hmm. how they thought about innovation, because I think they have a phenomenal slew of products um, would be my vote. Yes. Yeah, we'll allow it. We'll allow it. <laughs> Issa Rae, come on the show. All right. Number three, (laughs) what is a non-negotiable part of your day? I know there's got to be at least one. So what would that be? Coffee. Oh, yes. (laughs) A cup of coffee. I can't wait to drink some more coffee, man, post this pregnancy. (laughs) I'm going to be drinking iced coffee every day. Um, Number four, what is a personal habit, a personal trait about you that you think has significantly helped you in business? I'm kind. I'm a kind person. I think sometimes people think that's a weakness, but I think it's how Mm. I've been able to develop some of my best relationships. I think that's why we have a loyal team and like great relationships around the board. And so um, I think my kindness. Mm. And then finally, number five, what is your parting advice for fellow women entrepreneurs who want to be their own boss, but are worried about stepping away from the steady paycheck? It's okay to start small. I used to be so embarrassed with the way we started. I would show up to these trade shows with a $5 tablecloth I bought from Amazon. Like, (laughs) what is wrong with my business? It's never going to grow. Like, I would see these other people with shiny, like, billboards and trucks and all this Mm. stuff, and they're not in business anymore. And I think the financial discipline that I had to have and the understanding of every aspect of the business, because I had to do all the jobs, made me a stronger business person. Um, So I would say it's okay to start small. And so for somebody in corporate America, if that means just, like, initially being an intrapreneur, or having a side hustle. Like you don't have to quit your job all in one day and like yeah. try, go try to take on the world. I think it, it comes <laughs> in baby steps um, through consistency. Yes, baby steps, consistency. Don't be afraid to start small. I love those reminders. So where can people connect with you, Denise, and Partake Foods after this episode? People can connect with me on LinkedIn uh, and then also on Instagram at Denise G. Woodard. And then you can find Partake Foods uh, in stores at Target, Walmart, Kroger, and Whole Foods, as well as across social media at Partake Foods. All right, you guys. So there you have it. Thank you so much, Denise, for being in the guest chair. And I will talk to you guys next week. Thank you for having me. Hey guys, thanks for listening to Side Hustle Pro. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other side hustlers just like you to find the show. And 
if you want to hear more from me, you can follow me on Instagram at Side Hustle Pro. Plus, sign up for my six foot Saturday newsletter at sidehustleproco newsletter. When you sign up, you will receive weekly nuggets from me, including what I'm up to, personal lessons, and my business tip of the week. Again, that's sidehustleproco newsletter to sign up. Talk to you soon. Thank you.